Hello, this is John Hendren, the host of BachCast, episode number 23. In this episode, we look at Bach's Italian concerto, BWV 971. So we have lots of works by Bach that have these um, sort of ethnic or country names attached to them, right? The English suites, the French suites, and now we have this Italian concerto. Um, it, it probably isn't surprising looking at the Baroque period that uh, that national styles were certainly something that uh, were, were talked about, were written about, and... It certainly makes Bach look like this internationally aware composer that he's writing music in the in the French style or in an English style and so on and so forth. And as we've discussed earlier, uh, those labels really don't necessarily fit exactly that way, uh, which is to take away maybe some of that international uh, allure that we might have wanted to give Bach and what he was striving for. This is actually one of those concertos that Bach actually does get to use the word Italian. Uh, we know the French and English suites were uh, were really labels that got affixed to those suites later. In this case, Bach is writing us this beautiful uh, violin concerto, and we hear what you just heard was from the ensemble Concerto Italiano. And it starts out with this theme. Ritornello is, is the reason why it's called the Italian. Bach is modeling this after uh, what he perceives as the Italian style of concerto, which is uh, not terribly specific, but we look at maybe composers like Albanoni, uh, Vivaldi that were from what we call uh, Venice, uh, which wouldn't have been all of Italy at the time. But in, in Venice, they like these three movement concertos, and that's what Bach gives us. This is the first movement, very strong theme, dun, 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 right? And then we get this solo episode for the instrument. Solo episode is allowing the violin to escape from the texture of the orchestra and present a melody uh, that is not the same as the ritornello theme, but it's complementary. And then just as we faded out, it kind of came back and, and the ritornello theme returns with the full orchestra. And so that's what Bach is going after here, this, uh, this perception of this Italian style of concerto, a three-movement work and what could Bach do with this? Why was it special in the hands of Bach? And why did Bach at all? Because we know he borrowed from this idea in other works. For instance, his, his uh, violin concerto, the second one in E major. Dum, 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 
Right? Big, strong introduction. If you know that piece, the violin kind of emerges, does its thing. Well, what's interesting about this is Bach took the time to put a label on it. So we know that Bach took other concertos by other composers and reworked them. For instance, if you look at his organ works, he took concertos by Vivaldi and rewrote them for the keyboard. So he took this orchestral uh, work and reworked it for the keyboard, whether it's the organ or the harpsichord. He did this a number of times with, with composers. He did it with Marcello. I think he... Um, I know he did something on a theme of Albinoni. I'm not sure if he took a complete Albinoni concerto, but he's taking basically these orchestral works and saying, hey, look what I can do on the keyboard. And for those of you that might be scratching your head, if you actually know this piece, you know this isn't a violin concerto. But our friends uh, in Concerto Italiano decided to do the opposite of what Bach did. They took the Italian concerto, BWV 971, which, if I must reveal right now, is not an orchestral work. It's a work for the harpsichord. And they went backwards and said, what would this sound like if we pretended it was a violin concerto? And that's what we heard. It's a really neat recording, and it comes from an album they did back in 2004. And I apologize if you hear noise behind me. I'm not sure what's going on outside right now. And uh, it's something very loud. And I will explore later what that is, but I don't think it's in any harm to us, but you may hear some background noise and wonder what is going on. It's out of my control. Um, so they do this album. It's called Concerti Italiani. And you'll see the, the front cover of it has um, some famous portraits that are, I believe, in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence of a woman and a man. And in the album, they're facing one another. In re real life, they're not, but... Um, I'm sure there's a story behind it. I should be able to tell you about who it is, but I can't. Nevertheless, it's a very striking cover, these two people looking at one another. And on, on the cover, it says Bach, Vivaldi, Marcello. And so they have a number of different examples. And I was so pleased that they had included Bach's Italian concerto with this because it's a really neat kind of to hear this as an arrangement. It ends up being kind of short in their edition. First movement is just under four minutes. The middle movement's four and a half. The last is four. So Bach really is kind of modeling this after that Venetian three movement concerto, the Ritornello solo interplay, and in this edition that was recorded, we get um, obviously uh, a violin to be the soloist. And what is so interesting, I think, is that Bach is not transcribing this from somebody else. This is his original work. And he's showing us that, gosh, I can I can take this form that's being popular right now that other composers in Italy are writing, and I can take it and make it for the keyboard, which really shows uh, Bach's compositional artistry, I think, uh, in being able to, number one, champion the instrument he feels very comfortable with, the keyboard. Um, and in this case, we're going to uh, likely... If you could imagine, hear it on harpsichord and hear it on, on piano. Um, can't think off the top of my head if I've heard this ever on the organ. And It's written for, for two hands. And so um, Bach is in his comfort zone. He's saying, hey, 
we can take what makes up an Italian style concerto and I can I can write one of these myself. So next we're going to explore what this sounds like on the actual keyboard itself. And to kind of put us in box sound world, let's start with an example from a harpsichordist. So hearing the example, I think, with the, the full orchestral treatment um, and then hearing this version, it's a little easier, at least for me, to be able to differentiate between these, this idea of a ritornello. And then the solo episode, right? And Bach is, is almost kind of forward-looking. Um, we don't get something like a Mozartian Alberti bass, but we get this kind of this little pulsating, just just enough in the background to give you the sense of of the harmony, and the melody is sort of able to live on its own. And then we get the bass gets a little more interesting, has some rising lines, and then we're getting prepared to hear that that main theme again. And that's the version on the solo harpsichord. So there are some challenges, I think for the harpsichordist in being able to differentiate between the full orchestral sound and this solo work. And one of the techniques that harpsichordists have often used um, in recordings is to change the registers. The harpsichord as an instrument um, is, has an interesting um, kind of history. They're, they're national styles that went into the building of these things. They had different sound qualities and as as time went on, they started playing around with being able to change color and intensity of sound, and they did that primarily through deciding how many how many sets of strings were going to be sounding notes, and were we going to have them all sound at the same pitch. So let me say that again. Numbers of strings, and then at what pitch. Now, pitch, if you're thinking, well, John, aren't, if you play a G, aren't you going to get a G? Yeah, but they also would, would have it strung in such a way that you'd get a G an octave higher. And in, in the nomenclature that you'll see, they'll call that an 8-foot, which is sort of the regular pitch. You'll see 4-foot, half of 8. And if you basically take a length of a string and cut it in half, you'll get an octave higher. Uh, string players will know this because they uh, raise their hand on, on a fingerboard and a violin and halfway up basically is, is an octave. And to get the other octave, the next octave up, which would be a two, you move halfway up from there. 
there's actually some math behind how you divide up the string to get the octaves. So that's what they did. And you you have to almost, if you, if you don't pick it up on naturally, you have to hear a recording and know that you're getting both the eight foot and the four foot registers at the same time. And usually, to me, I would say that the sound kind of sparkles a little more. So that's a technique they'll use. In addition to that, you'll just change registers where you have two eight foot and then you'll go to a single eight foot. Or you'll change the position where it's being plucked, giving a different sound quality. And this is not unique to the harpsichord by any means. Uh, a piano can do this as well. Uh, in some pianos, the upper registers have double, they're double strung. The bass notes, because they're longer and tend to be a little louder, have single strung. So if you if you open up a, and this is um, done on on grand pianos and some upright pianos, if you actually can look inside the piano, uh, which likely you have maybe better access to than a harpsichord, um, just being that pianos are much more uh, of a popular instrument today, you can look inside and see that some of those upper notes are double strung, in some cases triple strung, just to give that intensity. Now there is a pedal on a piano that will shift the hammers. It'll shift the hammers, and for those lower notes that have single strings, nothing really happens, because they shift a little bit, because they're thicker, big, thick strings, especially on a grand piano. And then on the upper register, you only get one of the strings to be that will get the hammer. And they would use the same technique on the harpsichord. They also have a uh, uh, an instance called a lute stop, where a, a strip of leather, usually, would come across and kind of mute the strings, giving it a different sound. Um, and it's not to say that every harpsichord has all these uh, additional features to it. This was really uh, something up to the builder. Some of these features were popular during different times and in, in different countries. And uh, in addition to that, if you're really into harpsichords, um, the, 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 the materials they were made out of, the, the weight of them all contribute to different sound. And so that's one of the things I like to talk about when um, I review recordings is to what does the instrument sound like? Does it have a richness? Does it have a thinness? Does it have a delicacy to it? Um, there are so many different colors to a harpsichord. And you'll hear it and say, well, yeah, that's a harpsichord, but what is the color here? And in this case, with Richard Egar, who is our harpsichordist performing uh, the Italian concerto, um, he has a somewhat of a, I think, a delicate sounding instrument. He kind of almost adopts the same tempo as the version we just heard from Concerto Italiano. Um, and he doesn't do terribly much to differentiate between the solo episodes and the um, the ritornello where conceivably the whole orchestra would be playing. And we have to think back and say, well, how important is that? Um, Bach didn't write this for orchestra. He wrote for the single keyboard. So it might not be that important to differentiate between a loud sound and a, and a quiet sound. We can imagine if a, if a pianist were playing this that they might differentiate that way. Let's listen to uh, a version on the piano. This is by Alexandre Tarot, uh, and he 
like Concerto Italiano, released a, an album called uh, Italian Concertos. And in that, he includes The Italian Concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach. playing I think I um, I'm not sure where I first started getting some recordings by Thoreau he's a um, obviously a modern pianist playing on a modern piano and to me piano sounds are not comparing the sounds of pianos is not as interesting as harpsichords and I, I'd be doing a disservice to piano makers by saying they all sound the same but um, you know if, if you want to pick away at hairs and try to split the hairs and say, well, this is the thicker half of the hair. Yeah, there are different sounds between a Yamaha and a Steinway versus a Fazioli. And, but at the end of the day, if you were to, to just give me a piano sound, I could describe it to you, but I really wouldn't know a whole lot about it. Uh, and I'm not very knowledgeable to say, well, that's a German, German harpsichord versus an Italian style. Um, Certainly, as you get into these things, it, it can be interesting. Why do they sound different? What was the purpose behind it? What was does it suit the music differently? In terms of suiting suiting the music here, he does differentiate in volume between what we might perceive as the full orchestra and the soloist. You can see it in the waveforms as I pull this music into my editor here. You can see the loud part is is the is the ritornello and then when it gets into the solo episode uh it gets it, it comes down it's it's very minute and then as things kind of build up you see the crescendo visually um and he takes a speed he he shaves about a minute off of this so the egar recording was about four and a half minutes this is about just over three and a half and so he's playing a little more quickly definitely works for me on the piano but if you imagine that part being played in the violin, oh, it's almost a little too fast, I think. And so that again, is this really a violin piece? Or should we just forget that association now and think, well, this is a keyboard place, a keyboard piece. Let the let the uh, keyboard player do what they what they can do and let the let the instrument um, help this piece live. I really don't have strong opinions about about that. I uh, if you haven't picked up by now, I, I do like music played fast. Um, it's exciting, but there's also a time for slowing things down, and I could go either way with this one. This is a very strong piece. 
there's enough detail in it that I feel that if you slow it down, you can sort of accentuate some of those um, some of those solo passages and really play with it a little bit. Uh, and if you speed it up, it, it, it can work too, although it's harder to put those in there and you're going to kind of see it go by a lot more quickly. To give you one more point of reference, we're going to listen to another recording. This instrument, compared to Richard Egar's, is a lot, I would say, louder, a little clankier, a little uh, feistier, maybe. Um, and this harpsichordist kind of adopts the, the tempo of um, Thoreau, and he pushes it a little bit. But he does manage to let some of those fun things pop out. So... We'll give this a spin and then I'll tell you who the performer is. Harpsichordist in this case is Andreas Steyer, and this is from a recording he did a number of years ago uh, in the 90s for Deutsche Harmonia Mundi. Uh, it was a recording of the Klavierübung 1 and 2, two collections that Bach put together, and which includes this Italian concerto. Um, and what did he do different? He does alter the, the volume level there by changing keyboards. So he's on a uh, multiple keyboard harpsichord, so there are two keyboards, and you basically are doing is you're coupling one keyboard to both strings, you're coupling the second one to one of those strings, and when you're playing you can switch between the keyboards and get a different sound. And this this was something they did on organs, right? You would You would control different sets of pipes based on what keyboard you're on, and, and organs would sometimes go kind of wild in this. You might have three keyboards on an organ. Uh, today, there are organs with maybe five keyboards even. Uh, I'm not sure we ever had five keyboard organs popular in the Baroque period. That was quite an expense and complexity to do. A little easier if you're dealing with electronics to do that. But um, So he, he does the thing where he's playing with the sound using this instrument, kind of utilizing what the instrument brings to the music. But he doesn't do it for the Ritornello solo work. Where we're hearing him doing it there was with that echo effect. In the last podcast, we listened to um, B2V 1003, which is the second sonata for solo violin. 
And the fourth movement starts with these echo techniques, this kind of um, device that composers would use to imitate what an echo sounds like. And that echo could be simulated by using different instrumentalists, and then it became kind of a thing that you would build echo into a piece for one player. And the idea is that you, the second uh, iteration of that theme, which would come right after the first, would be played in a different way to simulate the idea that it's being heard off in the distance. And the technique that always uh, seems to follow composers, uh, which is a quite obvious one, is to play the first statement loud, to play the second one kind of soft. And so to get that effect here, when, when Steyer recognizes, oh, Bach is putting a little echo in here. He's put one little theme, and then it repeats itself. He goes from that full-bodied sound with multiple strings being plucked to the lighter version, uh, likely by moving his hand up to the higher keyboard, which is not plucking both strings at once. So I really like Steyer's reading of this. Um, it's been a favorite of mine, despite all the new ones that come out. Uh, it's it's kind of a fun one. Um, and again, if you are in the market for a lot of box music on the harpsichord, it, it came in a, in a, a multi-disc set. Now, I spoke earlier about registers, right? This 8-foot, the 4-foot, and... I have to be honest with you in listening to this, I don't think either performer are using the four-foot register on the instrument right now. Um, but a couple years ago, there was a, I say controversial, I don't think it's controversial like what we're used to in the news today about when controversy comes out. But it was a different take on something. Um, there was released in 2012, and this is on the... A, a Lois label, A-E-L-O-U-S. This is Helsinki Baroque Orchestra. And my apologies to this gentleman if I don't get his name pronounced quite right. Apo Hakinen, or Hakinen. Uh, he's the harpsichordist and kind of the leader of Helsinki Baroque. And they put out uh, their first, since that time, a second one has come out, of uh, Concerti a Cembalo Concertato. Uh, they actually took that off a manuscript by Bach. It's the first volume of harpsichord concertos by Bach, and what they included, what they included was the Italian concerto, solo harpsichord. Now, you keep hearing this first movement along. I'm going to give you my last clip of the first movement, but I want you to hear the different sound, and then we'll talk about why this harpsichord sounds so different.
So if you had difficulty before hearing the differences between the colors and the volume levels and the the timbre changes in Andrea Stair's reading of this, uh, it probably sticks out a lot in this one. This harpsichord is is a beast, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. They have strung this harpsichord. This harpsichord was built with what they call a 16-foot register in it. So you are getting an octave below the 8-foot. So many harpsichords that are used in recordings today have usually a complement of like an 8, two 8s, and maybe a 4. Um, I'm generalizing a lot, but... It just so happens in recordings I have often they will they will if they specify the specifications of the instrument that's something you commonly see an eight eight and a four so that gives you the capability of, of playing three sets of strings at once if it's been strung that way this one has a 16 foot register which is unusual and Mr. Hakinen uh, advocates that this type of instrument likely was the one used at the Zimmerman Coffee House uh, where Bach's harpsichord concertos were likely uh, celebrated and performed, and he advocates for this instrument, and this recording is, is really his experiment, if you will, to say, hey, does this work? Um, and it, it for me, it, it does have a very interesting sound with the harpsichord concertos with orchestra, because that extra low component to the sound kind of cuts through and adds a richness to the sound. And in this one, I'm I have to tell you, I'm, the, the jury is still out for me whether I really like this sound or not. Um, for this concerto, parts of it make it sound dark because it just has that extra octave. But then you, you probably heard where he doesn't always exclusively use it. He breaks off and plays especially some of the melody with just the eight-foot voice and then comes back and then, as, the, as we imagine, the orchestra is coming back in um, we get that 16-foot register in there. You may have also seen this notation 8, 4, 16, uh, especially 8 and 16 when it refers to the double bass part in box writings. And there's some controversy behind that uh, because of something we call octave doubling. And I'm not going to go into that, and I I tend to think it probably isn't as big as a controversy as we want to make it out to be, but there's, there's question in a lot of box works, what at what pitch should the so-called double bass play at? Because we have different instruments we know were used, and we're not exactly sure, uh, at least some of us aren't, about what what instrument was appropriate. And there was this, obviously the cello is kind of the eight-foot register if you're reading, and then if you say double add double bass to that, the double bass... A double ba- a real double bass, uh, sounds an octave lower. So two players are playing the same line, but they're actually it's like playing octaves on the piano, or in this case, it's like playing this instrument that has an eight and a sixteen to it. And if it did, it probably wasn't that big of a deal to Bach to have that doubling because the instrument did. And just like the instrument did, we can have a cello and a double bass play in unison in theory, but we're actually an octave apart. Um, Other folks will say, no, we need an eight-foot larger instrument, a violone, 
uh, a kind of a smaller double bass that would have played at the same pitch level as the cello, um, which then you'd have two versions of eight. Different sound, maybe a little, little darker, a little heavier sounding than a cello because the instrument's bigger, um, but it's not doubling at the octave. So that's what makes this recording kind of unique. And if you liked that sound, again, that was released uh, back in 2012. Alongside Mr. Hakkinen was the Helsinki Baroque Orchestra. And one of my favorite violinists, Ricardo Manassi, is uh, the lead violinist on that recording. Um, and if you even liked it more, uh, they just came out with Volume 2, uh, some of more of Bach's harpsichord concertos. Now let's talk about the middle movement. The middle movement in this work uh, challenges me a little bit. In so many performances, I feel it's it's really long. It has this kind of elaborate bass line structure that's box put together. And the melody is kind of slow, and you kind of have to just get into it. I feel as if I have to really change my expectations and my mood to listen to this one. And it really is a great piece of music. It just challenges me. And one of the challenges is, do we play it at this very slow tempo, plodding along and let it sort of just beautifully emerge? It's, it's, I would kind of equate this middle movement to a very slowly blooming flower. And you've likely seen one of those um, uh, time-lapse photography, uh, things of a flower kind of opening up, right? That's, sometimes that's my attitude. That's my mood. Okay, open, let's speed it up and, and, and get to the good stuff. And that's more about me and less about box art. But I just want to give you some different listens now. We're not going to analyze this one probably as deeply. But to hear what different performers, how they tackle this, because it, it can be a slow movement. So just looking at times, just to give you an idea of, of the different timings, uh, Apo Hakkinen records this at uh, 4.09, 4 minutes, 9 seconds. Okay. Uh, Andreas Steyer, I can't pull that up at the moment. Let me see if I can do it quickly here. He does it at four, just under four and a half minutes. Um, Concerto Italiano, the one with strings, does it in four and a half minutes, 4.33. Uh, if we're listening to uh, Glenn Gould, he really milks it. <laughs> His middle movement for the Italian concerto. Um, and I believe he's recorded more than once. In this particular recording, this came off of the Glenn Gould edition. Uh, it's coupled with the Marcello concerto and some other additional fugues and fantasies of Bach recorded. He does this at just 8 minutes, 7.57 uh, in another recording that he did, along with the first and second partitas in 1959, he records it at 5.57. Uh, if we listen to Trevor Pinnock, uh, he came out with the Italian concerto on an album entitled The Harmonious Blacksmith, uh, a piece by Handel. Uh, favorite harpsichord pieces in 1984, he records it at four and a half. Four and a half seems to be popular here, right? Um, 
Our friend Alexandre Tharo on the piano does it at 5.09. And Richard Egar, who we started with, was 4.51. So a lot of folks are recording this about four and a half minutes. Um, I'm going to give you a listen of a harpsichord we haven't heard yet. And this comes off uh, an album I sampled in our last episode. This is Jean Rondeau, uh, who came out with a box album entitled Imagine from 2015. And this is his Andante, the middle movement of Bach's Italian Concerto. For me, if you've adjusted your mood, you kind of slow things down a little bit, slow down your expectations. What we hear at the beginning is this is maybe the orchestral backdrop, right? Um, that boom, boom just keeps. It's just repetitive, and it it kind of says, "Okay, we're getting bored by that." And then this melody comes in, right, and it really kind of different melody. This is one of Bach's, I think, one of really creative moments. And then eventually that monotonous background pulsing changes, and it seems to have an effect on the melody. Of course, we're changing harmonies, and so the melody has to adjust, and there's this kind of interplay. And even though there's more than two voices, he's, he's filling in with harmony with the, with the uh, notes on the harpsichord. Um, it really is sort of a two-voiced um, dialogue, something against something else, which is Bach's way of saying, hey, here's the, here's the soloist against uh, the orchestra, whatever that may be. We know if we look at Vivaldi's concertos, he did not always write out full orchestral parts in the middle movements. Sometimes it was just the, the continual line with the soloist, no strings. Other times, Vivaldi wrote no continual part and just had maybe the violins accompanying uh, the soloist. And so Bach is, is kind of playing with that here. Um, we don't, might not be sure about what he's really referencing, but this idea of a limited back, background and letting the soloist really be the star. You can imagine maybe the lights are down, the spotlight's on that soloist. Of course, Bach likely would never have had that <laughs> reference, but... Uh, that's what I think of when I hear this. And I, in speaking about the sounds of the instruments, I love the instrument uh, Mr. Rondeau has chosen for this album. It really, it's just kind of an, has an interesting timbre. It, at this point, I'm at a loss for describing it. Uh, it just has a rich sound to my ears. Um, he's not playing around with registers at this point. He's just kind of uh, giving it to us there. And... Uh, 
the, the sound of the instrument is something, I think, pretty special. So I mentioned Glenn Gould, and Glenn Gould is, um, you either tend to love him or hate him. I'm going to just give you a sample of what he does with the middle movement, and I'm going to choose that extra long one. I just wanted you to hear how he stretches this out a little bit, just to give another reference of how an uh, interpreter deals with this, this movement. You had this pretty quick, dun, 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 fast thing, and then we're slowing down, and we're sort of in the night, maybe, and we're taking our time and letting this this almost bizarre type of melody unfold uh, with this repetitive, I wouldn't call it a drone. I'm not, I'm not sure what the appropriate term would be, but that boom, boom, on, on the second and third beat just keeps coming. Da, boom, boom. Uh, you can almost imagine big bass drum just, if we had a modern orchestra and we were rewriting this, I would think if I was the orchestrator, I would have to use a little bass drum just to kind of send that, send those two notes home, that, that kind of repetitive pattern, the rhythmic. Let's see what Glenn Gould does. So Gould is, is detaching everything, very short, boom, boom. Different, right? Um, we know that he, a lot of times, was trying to get a sound that somewhat approximated the short attack of the harpsichord. I'm not sure if that was the intent there, but it's, it's, it's almost bizarre when you've listened to some of these others, and I... After that, I gave you a different piano rendition. That was Alexandre Tarot. Uh, and he is much more lyrical. Uh, he's letting those bass notes really stay on and, and holds them out. And uh, I'm not sure either one is necessarily my favorite treatment of it. I would, I would think that, um, if anything, you might want to imitate the sound of a cello, which would have the shortness, but not necessarily that extreme shortness that Gould gave it. Um, and of course, you can say, well, I'm playing a piano, not a cello, leave me alone, and I can certainly support that as well. But two very different approaches. Uh, Thoreau records this at, um, I should not say Thoreau, Taro performs this at 509. 
So he, and you probably pick up, he had a little bit of a uh, slightly faster tempo. Just to give you, again, one more comparison, let's listen to Andreas Steyer, middle movement from BWV 971. So what do you think? A little different, huh? First of all, the tempo is, compared to what we just heard, is kind of pushing it a little bit. And typically, that's something that I've kind of liked about this, because we have this, these two very energetic uh, bookends to the thing. And in the middle, it just, ooh, you have to just kind of prepare yourself. If you can do that, if you, if you want to let that melody just slowly bloom like a slow flower, blooming in the night perhaps um, there's definitely some versions out there where, they, where they're stretching the time again Andreas Steyer uh, records this at 3 minutes and 51 seconds probably the fastest one I have uh, I own and I kind of like it I like what he does not only in the first movement with ornamentation but he's doing it again here and he's really letting that melody sing and he does something that I can't say I remember a lot of performers doing that. It's adding the the louder voice with the harpsichord, um, multiple strings with the melody, but using the softer for the background. And so um, it's not, I guess, unusual, but it's to me a smart way of, of letting the melody sing and having the the accompaniment uh, go to the background using the voicings of a harpsichord to do that. Um, so that's that's Andreas Steyer. If it hasn't emerged by now, it's probably my favorite recording of the Italian concerto on harpsichord. The third movement, a lot of energy. It's a fun piece. Um, Going to give you the full-on orchestral version first and then we'll listen to a couple recordings on the keyboard and finish up this episode.
So we're doing the ritornello structure again. Where we get this theme. And it's kind of a neat theme in that it really sets itself back on the home key of F. I mean, you play two of the tonic notes, the home key notes, and then you kind of do a scale run in that key. There's nothing that's going to establish the key more than that. But then that theme kind of ends where you could go either way with it, which is a technique. Those are, it's not just by chance that a composer would write a theme like that. Um, so Bach gives us kind of two statements of that, right? Nice, neat little statement. The second one kind of leads to something else, and that something else happens to be one of these solo episodes. And in this case, they use the violin to kind of be the soloist, which, which works for me. Um, and again, some cool things happen. Accompaniment comes in. We got kind of get some dialogue with maybe the first violins um, to kind of play off our theme. Bach, obviously the contrapuntalist, is, is kind of playing there and having some multiple things happen at the same time, which is kind of interesting. And we're off to the start again to a really kind of neat theme. Exciting, I think. It's it's an optimistic sounding piece to me. It's it's the the uh, this is just kind of a fun, happy piece of music. Let's listen to the same clip. Ritornello statement, solo statement, now performed on by one person on keyboard. so many things to talk about um this is trevor pinnock M mentioned him before we haven't heard him yet trevor pinnock uh british harpsichordist put out tons of albums in the 80s he was the founder of the english concert uh if you haven't heard of him where have you been and his claim to fame was being a harpsichordist and uh deutsche gramophon archive production uh put out a lot of music by him and, and his ensemble uh, really kind of igniting, uh, kind of bringing historical, historically informed practice to the mainstream through the, through the recordings. Um, this is the first one we've listened to today where I hear, by my ears, the eight and four foot registers playing together. So just to give you a different sound, to, to, and I can't go back in time, I don't have the indication of, of what the voicing was, but 
to my, to my ears, I hear the eight and the four foot together, that octave higher. Uh, whereas the the other example we listened to by Abel Hakinen was we had the 16 and the 8. And Panic 2 is changing registers, giving us um, kind of the echo effect type thing again where we have passages that are loud and then soft. And right as we end there, Bach is doing some kind of cool stuff. He's doing some dialogue, right? And how do you how do you how do you really bring out that there's two voices? It, it's just kind of a natural, I think, psychology to think that that is kind of a dialogue thing. How does the performer bring it out? And for Pinnock, he's changing registers there. We can imagine maybe a soloist on the violin dialoguing with the orchestra, with the violin section of the orchestra. Uh, it's just a really neat piece of music. I hope you're sort of enjoying uh, enjoying it yourself. Um, I'm going to give you a, a taste now of what a pianist does. Again, we're going to start from the same spot, the beginning of the third movement, which is Mark Presto, by the way. For the tempo that you just heard, Pinnock records this at 355. Okay, 355. And the version we're going to hear plays us at 305. So almost shaving, almost a full minute off.
So we actually got three different samples in there. The first, that super, super, super fast one, was from Glenn Gould. That probably was an easy guess. He loved playing fast. He was a virtuoso by no doubt. But I was disappointed because it, the notes almost go by too fast. And what we lose is sort of that um, inherent dialogue that's going on between the parts. And he doesn't really accentuate any of that at all. He's playing all those different lines, if you will. If you're thinking of, okay, we've got a solo, we've got a, we got an orchestra, we've got the bass of the orchestra, we've got this little dialogue going on. It, it's just all kind of a wash. And we can trick ourselves in our mind and hear it and pull it out and appreciate it. But he's really not going out of his way to point that out to us. And I think a performer probably ought to do that. In, in the second version, we have Alexandra um, Thoreau, who takes uh, not quite a fast of pace as Gould, slows things down a little bit, which I like, um, but again, has some difficulty pulling out the main line. And the problem is, Bach's got some stuff happening in the higher register that's no longer the main melody. It's being played in the left hand. And so what do we do? Well, hmm. Becomes difficult, I think, um, as on a piano. We don't have that ability to change hands. And so there are our third edition that you heard, and it's, it's probably the, uh, the part that kind of made you cringe a little bit when you heard it because it's at a different tuning standard. Uh, but the harpsichord version, Andreas Steyer, um, kind of is to me is the best of both worlds. As a harpsichord, he's not afraid to push the tempo, and it seems to work for me. Um, his ornamentation, which is also uh, I, there was one spot in particular that both him and um, Taro do the same ornament on one of the notes. Uh, kind of is, is like tickling you, right? It's um, it's just well done, and they, they come out really nicely. I think he's he's a very uh, articulate uh, performer, and the style by which he adds those ornaments just to me sings uh, sings very nicely. But then we get to the part where we're trying to follow what is the melody, and it's switching around. He has the capability on a harpsichord to switch hands and to let the dominant melody part stick out even though there's switching of the hands. This is one of those cases where I would invite you to take a look at the score, kind of pick out where you think the melody is as you're listening to it. Um, Bach changes things around a little bit and really begins, I think, for the really the first time to exploit this idea of a keyboard. Um, the idea that, well, we just have to be delegated to the upper part. I'm not playing around anymore. There's more I can do than just emulate what a violin part would do. I'm, I'm really writing something that takes full advantage of the keyboard. And Bach sort of eases us into that. So there's a lot more that could be said about this um, particular piece. And uh, we're already over an hour in this podcast. And so I'm, I'm going to stop there. I did want to give you a number of different examples to listen to because I think this piece has that complexity. We have a composer who's at the top of his form. 
Keep in mind, this is one of those pieces that Bach put out there for others to see. He included it as part of his clavier ubum, his, um, his collected pieces for keyboard that he wanted others to be able to see. This is, you could say, his proudest, some of his proudest work for the keyboard. He's taking the time to put in a collection. He's saying, hey, I'm going to compete with everybody else that's out there and put some stuff out there. And here's this concerto. He doesn't call it the Italian concerto, by the way. That's our kind of uh, shorthand way of referring to it. Um, he actually writes, I'm going to look it up to get it exactly right, because if I say it wrong, then I'll have egg on my face. You can hear me typing in the background here, cheating. Let's see what the Wikipedia has to say about this. Yes, here we go. I knew I'd get it wrong. It's Concerto Nac Italianischem Gusto. A concerto after the Italian flavor or the Italian taste. That's his German title of it. Um, according to the Wikipedia, it was published in 1735. And of note, if you actually decide to look this up, there's not a lot written about it in the um, Wikipedia. It just tells us the three movements, and it tells us that it was published alongside what he called the French Overture. So he not only was trying to be international in writing something in the Italian taste, um, sort of mimicking the Italian solo concerto for full orchestra. He's also going to take on the idea of a French suite. Uh, if you imagine uh, Lully uh, with his um, uh, orchestra for Louis XIV playing a big overture with dance movements, Bach's going to take that on in another piece for the keyboard as well. So some interesting stuff. Hope you've enjoyed hearing the differences in performances. Maybe you've heard uh, one or two or three or four that you haven't heard before. And that's not to say that's those are the only uh, acts in town, but those are some of the examples that have fallen into my collection. And um, probably the most interesting to me in the probably the last 10 years has been that edition by Concerto Italiano where they've actually transcribed it for orchestra. Um, it definitely has challenged them on how to rearrange that to make it all work. But uh, to me, it's kind of a neat uh, interpretation because it's it's what these all these performers are trying to do, I think, whether it's on the piano or the harpsichord. They're trying to pull out different voices. They, they realize that Bach's modeling this after something that doesn't exist. And they actually try and do that. So um, it's one of my favorites. In addition, you heard... Andreas Steyer on a harpsichord, and even though I think Glenn Gould uh, plays too fast sometimes, I think it still works. It's uh, it shows off that Bach, despite um, despite everything else, his music is is so universal that it works um, when we put it in a pressure cooker and do some weird things to it. And so uh, you shouldn't be surprised that it works for a small string chamber ensemble and a pianist who like to maybe show off a little bit and play really fast. Um, 
There are so many choices out there for us to enjoy this music, and no matter which one you pick, I think you'll find some some uh, satisfaction in this particular work. Folks, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, 23rd in a series. Um, if you have not followed me on Twitter, um, I usually put announcements out about reviews and new podcast episodes. You can find me on Twitter at Bieberfan, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N, which would indicate beyond Bach. I like some other Baroque composers as well. Referencing there, not Justin, but um, Heinrich Ignaz Franz von, von Bieber. Um, perhaps one day I'll have the energy to do a Bieber cast. But for right now, we're focusing on the works of Bach. I want to thank you for listening. 